Hello there, and welcome to the Pitch Drop End of the Year bonus episode. There are two of these, if you happen to be one of our lovely patrons at the $5 level or up. There is a second one of these, which is slightly more audio-friendly, let's say. It's going to be more interesting than just listening to me talk for a while, which is what this is, but I have collected some suggestions for various bits of media that we are probably never going to cover on the network, and just discuss them as both highlights and lowlights of the past year for your entertainment and possibly something to look at during the break. I hope you enjoy these, and please don't expect there to be any consistency to these rules, because I am going to cheat. That is how this works. I get to do this because I am the editress, and I am also the person who is pulling this out of her ass, while no one else did anything but write some recommendations. So, blame my co-hosts. I can say that because they can't stop me. They also can't stop me from recommending the show that a friend of mine, Lord BBH, does, uh, Push to Reject. Uh, BBH is an arcade expert, and for seven years he ran a stream called Mame Roulette, where he would go through every game that was marked as functional in the Mame catalog, which, as you would know, changed several times over the course of seven years. And with Mame Roulette behind him, he decided the successor series would be the now-launched in 2023 Push to Reject, where, going forward chronologically from 1979, he is taking on the lesser-known and, some might say, failed arcade games that came on, and putting together a history of them, showing how Various ideas developed, the slumps the industry fell into for a while between all the major releases. For every Space Invaders or Pac-Man, there were about 17 different terrible space games or maze games that you couldn't get away from. And his journey through those also shows that there were some particularly interesting failures that just didn't show up anywhere, and never got mentioned again. Uh, some things actually have to be emulated off of collections, because there are no ROM dumps of them out there. And in fact, they are not in main, but have to be run off of something like, say, the Taito Egret Mini, which is the only place they're archived. It's a fascinating project. It runs every two weeks, and you can find it at twitch.tv slash lordbbh, or at his archive channel on YouTube if you want to go into these from the start. I recommend giving it a go, and you'll learn about the joys of Jetsoft, the British developer who made about five games in maybe 200 copies each, and gave the world Bongo. Speaking of video games, I will say that Probably my personal game of the year, which released in 2023, would be Tevi. Tevi is a search action, Metroidvania, whichever name you like, game from the developers of Rabby Ribby. It's a fascinating follow-up to that one because Rabby Ribby is one of the most open-ended, hands-off, play-it-how-you-like games I've ever touched in the genre. It contains all sorts of optional content, branches, 
hidden tech you can use to sequence break. You can play the whole game with 0% items. It lets you do that. They test it. It actually requires quite a bit of skill. The bosses can scale in multiple ways depending on the order you fight them or how much equipment you have going into those fights. Did you make it there without the double jump? Well, congrats! Their patterns are going to change to be something that you can do with a single jump and the wall. It's things like that. Every fight in the game scales this way. Everything can be accessed out of order. I played through it for the first time this year, and it proceeded to set me up in a position where I actually jumped over the wrong wall, got the achievement, not even the developer knows what will happen now, and skipped ahead five chapters in the story to where uh, the game scaled to post-game difficulty for me for the rest of the game. That was a, that was fun. But Tevi is their follow-up. It is much less you-must-have-anime-tolerance-to-enter. Rabbi Ribby got a little um, fanservice-y, let's say, in places. And Tevi goes with a little bit more of a steampunk-slash-futuristic vibe than Rabbi Ribby's kind of cartoony anime cutesy. It's a much tighter game. The boss battles are still just as wonderfully designed, but they are faster. Everything feels just a little bit more polished. It is the second game from a team who knew what they were doing, and I highly recommend it. It's the best thing I bought this year that came out this year. But that doesn't mean there weren't other good games, like in Stars and Time, a fascinating JRPG which came out recently. There's a... I believe there's still a demo. It's on a few platforms, Switch and PC at the least. And the concept is that you are a party who is trying to stop a wizard from freezing a nation in time. You find out very quickly when you walk into a trap inside this final dungeon that you, the protagonist, seem to be stuck in a time loop. So every time you fail, your job is now to figure out how you get around that failure and move your party forward to that wizard. This is a more interesting tale than it seems, and I'm not going to go much deeper than that. Again, there's a demo which is a prologue which takes place a little before the events of the game. So it's a good way to introduce yourself to the characters, and they are... I know this is going to be a selling point for some people, and I know this sounds pandery when I say it. I, It's really hard to mention something like this in a way that stresses how well it's written and doesn't come off that way. But it's got a party with a lot of different queer identities, and people just talk to each other like people. It's not pointing out what flags are on me. No, it's instead it comes up as a result of the people they know, the things they are hoping to do when they are done with this quest, the relationships they have with each other. It's good stuff. Highly recommend. In Stars and Time. Similarly, if you are waiting for an upcoming season of Lightning Strikes Thrice where we are going to be covering Wizardry 4, The Revenge of Wordna, maybe you would be interested by a just-released-this-year in the West. It's I'll get there. Wizardry, the Five Ordeals. See, 
The wizardry license has been tied up in a lot of legal limbo for a while. And so this is one of two releases in the series that came out this year, the other being Digital Eclipse's excellent remastering of the first game, which, again, might be doing something to cut through those legal Gordian knots. But the Five Ordeals is an original campaign. However, it adds in as DLC, and these are full campaigns, some of the Gaiden games that never came out in the West. I want to say the two that are currently out are from the Game Boy? They're Game Boy or Super Famicom. Either way, this is the start of trying to get that back together, and it's also got a very large level editor, although they are stressing heavily, please do not make us take down any of the games that... Uh, you might try to adapt, like Wizardry 2, 3, 4, etc. Don't do that. Or if you do, don't put it up on the Steam store. Maybe look around. A little. Uh, 2023 was also big for, and I suppose some of you probably heard about this, that Scott Pilgrim guy came back and there was a whole new anime, etc, etc. But... Some people also remember there was a Scott Pilgrim game, and soundtrack and art aside, it's the worst Scott Pilgrim thing, period. So, what if there was a Scott Pilgrim game and it was good, you might be asking? That's Thirsty Suitors. Thirsty Suitors has you playing as a girl who returns to her hometown, and she was a fucking disaster. The creators themselves describe it not as a dating simulator, but a breakup simulator, and you have to deal with being a human trash fire who returned to the scene of her many romantic crimes. Her family is wonderful. Every one of her exes is fantastic. It is a visual novel-slash-skateboarding-slash-RPG hybrid. It's great. Thirsty Suitors, really one of many excellent games that came out this year. A game that is my first real cheat is SnowRunner, which continues to develop content and push new seasons every three to five months or so. SnowRunner is a simulation. It is the game that is one of two things I will generally be playing while I edit our shows, because it is something that I can just hit pause on at an instant when I need to do edits. And SnowRunner has you running around in various forms of truck. Some of them are scout trucks, beat-up little pickups, whatever, to explore and map out the region you are in. And then you get up to things that carry multiple log carts, or a crane, or earthquake-detecting uh, seismic equipment. And your job is to get it across the terrain of whatever flooded, snowed-over, sunken fucked up hit by a hurricane landscape you are in. It takes place all around the world in myriad seasons, terrain of all sorts. You can customize your trucks in a variety of ways, from tires to engines to whatever little icons you want to put on the dashboard. Color your headlights if you want them to glow teal. I like doing that. And just run around completing tasks, restoring these regions, building new bridges that you have to first cross with no 
no support whatsoever. Can you get across the river? Hope so. You need to get over there to get some of the supplies that are going to build the new bridge you take back across. And as you restore each of these regions and head out looking for more trucks and completing tasks in the area to upgrade what you have, buy new things, move across the globe, you will either love or hate this, and I love it. It's great. It's chill. It is the most dadly thing I do these days. I'm also very excited because next year they have a sequel, I suppose? Uh, Expeditions, a Mudrunner game, which is taking the base gameplay of SnowRunner and ratcheting it up even higher in a way that seems to be giving you more things to do than just drive the trucks around. They've given you the ability to get out of the cars, camp. Uh, the cars can now do much crazier things. You want a winch that can go and just take you near vertically up a crevasse? Go for it. That's in there. It looks like it is going to be a fascinating evolution. It's dropping in March. Keep an eye on it. SnowRunner and Expeditions of Mudrunner game. Now, this one I am going to take from my partner Emily because she played much more of this. Uh, Street Fighter VI dropped this year. Expect me to do something like this for Tekken 8 next year because that's my game. But I am now quoting. Street Fighter VI is one of the only fighting games that I can recommend without any reservations. The netcode is fantastic, the ranked matchmaking is snappy and robust, and the training modes don't just teach you a few moves and combos, but show you how to play to a character's strengths. New to six is the drive meter system, which gives characters a resource that you can spend to extend combos, enhance special moves, parry tricky attacks, unleash a punish on risky attacks, or use for bursts of speed and frame advantage. You have to be careful, though. Once a character runs out of drive meter, they're left vulnerable to stuns and are slower to recover from blocking. It's a great system that allows a lot more flexibility in how you can play a character, and a big part of why even the worst characters in the game are still viable in high-level play. Crucially, Street Fighter VI does not have any kind of in-game chat for ranked matches, so you will not get scrubquotes.txt moments after winning a set from an angry loser. Also, the single player exists. And with that, I'm going to take us over to the cinema. I'm going to speed past a couple of movies. You know some of these things were good this year. Godzilla Minus One. Excellent. One of the top three films in that franchise. It's great. Scream 6. It's a wonderful new revival. It feels as fresh as the first one did when it came out in the 90s. Highly recommend it. Uh, you know, stuff like that. No, I want to talk about May 12th, the worst day in cinema in years, because we got two movies that day. One was an American version of Knights of the Zodiac, a.k.a. Saint Seiya, a live-action adaptation of a property that has taken off for years in myriad places worldwide, especially Latin America, and yet never got a foothold in the white people world. So, Knights of the Zodiac is the studio being involved with Toei. This was adapted as a Japanese co-production with Asian actors, and in fact, it does the Surf Dracula thing. If you are unfamiliar with the term the Surf Dracula thing, it is a joke that 
Prestige TV has ruined the model of storytelling to the point that a show called Surf Dracula, be it existing post-2005, is now something where you will spend an entire season following this character being sad until you see him get on the surfboard for five minutes at the end of the first season, and then promise that you can actually get the thing that you came for if they get a season two renewal. Knights of the Zodiac does that, but worse because it cuts out a lot of the plot for various characters who aren't the lead in a team series, and also undercuts a lot of the drama that drives it, because Knights of the Zodiac is basically an anime series that is a tokusatsu soap opera. It is people from outside of time reincarnated in mortal but god bodies dealing with the consequences of that power and the people who want to kill them from prior ages, and eventually some of them come to blows with each other. None of that can happen with what Knights of the Zodiac gives us on screen, and it's just fucking dull. On the other hand, it's fascinating because it's such a misfire from the people who were involved with the original license. You'd think they would have tried to go for something more faithful, which probably would have gone over better, but no, it makes the same kind of adaptation mistakes you would have expected from a team of completely divorced from the property creators. It's very strange, not worth your time, but worth calling out, because it also came out the same day as Hypnotic, which is... I have heard some critics claim that this must have been the first attempt by a studio to try doing a fully AI-generated film. I don't know if I believe that, but I will say it is one of the biggest failures of cinema I have seen in years. To try and sum up the plot of this movie is a challenge, and I, I'm i not going to just read off a Wikipedia summary because I can't tell you what Ben Affleck's whole deal is as he's going through double crosses and questioning his own identity and also everything is sort of just thrown out the window every 20 minutes, but this is one of the worst things that has ever been put to film in the past decade. And I just, like, I want you to know that I generally hold that kind of contempt for the Marvel slop. So, yeah, absolute bullshit. Both of these debuted on May 12th in America, and they're just terrible. Really god-awful shit. However, if you're drunk enough, or you have friends to roast it with, well worth your time, because you'll be howling. Uh, much more worth your time in an actual way would be the animated adaptation of Nimona, which is a webcomic by Nate Diana Stevenson, or N.D. Stevenson, and he, they, uh, I'm just going to use they because I know that they're transmask, but have gone in a they direction, non-binary status. It's, I know it's been fluid over the past few years, so I'm going to stick with the safe they. Uh, they wrote this comic years ago, and 
it was an interesting one because it was a sort of medieval setting, but you were following a villain and his henchmen. And the henchman is a little shape-shifting goblin girl named Nimona. And where this goes over the course of the story changes between that comic and the adaptation, but the adaptation keeps the incredibly queer subtext and supertext of the work, and it actually got cancelled at least once in the process of coming out. It was yanked because it was in development at 20th Century Fox, before the Disney acquisition, where they decided that it was too gay for them, thrown out the back door, mostly completed, and eventually it would come around to where Netflix would help fund the rest of development and release it on their platform this year, ages after all sorts of roadblocks in the middle. It's wonderful, I highly recommend both versions, and I'm going to use that to transition into comics media. Because on that note, a similar work from that era, which is another version of me cheating, but I will never not take the opportunity to recommend this, is the similar started as a webcomic and so far has only been one, O Human Star by Blue Deliquanti. Their work is wonderful, and it actually hits on queer love from a different angle, being the story of two gay men where one died young, but they were pioneers in robotics, and then, one day, years in the future, he suddenly finds himself alive again. And nobody seems to know why this has happened. His body is now fully cybernetic. And the mystery and the whole history of their relationship and what's brought them to this point, and the journey it takes them on, as well as the fact that there seems to be a uh, a second version of him around who has gone in a very different path, designed as an early AI experiment. Well, it it takes some turns. It's wonderful. Uh, o Human Star by Blue Deliquanti. On the manga side, if we want to go with some stuff that will really hit you in the gut, I just finished the released in English this year, Until I Love Myself, a manga by yet another non-binary <laughs> cartoonist, uh, Poppy Pasuyama. And it starts out as a tale of horrendous trauma that is based on their life story and begins with the incident of being an assistant to a manga creator whose name is never revealed in the work for legal reasons. They are just referred to as X and drawn in an excessively cartoony style that can't really be traced to anyone. And Pesuyama describes horrendous abuse about their gender at the time, presenting female, and how that fucked them up for years, and the slow journey of trying to create again, trying to get over that trauma, telling this story, the people in their life who helped them with this, and it doesn't... It's 
I would hesitate to call it comedic. It would be the blackest comedy, if so, but it is a very good story, and it goes a lot of different places and to a lot of different points in their life, and forward and back on the timeline, and all the little things that can really fuck you up when you are trying to come to terms with your own identity. For a variety of reasons, some of it hit with me, which... Gee, I wonder why that could be, if it says person who has a lot of their own journey on this, chronicled on years of recordings that you may have listened to, dear listener. But uh, Until I Love Myself is very heavy, but a nice two-volume snack that... God, I don't want to say snack. It's not... It's not breezy, but it's... It's easy to get through with those two volumes if you can push through more than one chapter at a time, because... Definitely some, definitely some heavy material there. A lot of content warnings on that one. I, I won't get into it, but I think you can probably guess that from the start of how I described it. Heavy in a much more pleasant way would be the now released in English in a physical volume, Goodbye Eri by Tatsuki Chainsaw Man Fujimoto. This was released as a one shot last year. Late 2021, early 2022, between parts one and two of Chainsaw Man, and it's it's great. It's a wonderful tale that is very meta about being a creator, losing those close to you, the difference between a public persona and real life, how you grapple with losing those around you, what an artist can do to grapple with those feelings. It's wonderful. It's probably one of the top pieces of manga just about creating that I've ever seen. It's great. It's funny. It will probably make you cry if you have ever lost a family member. It's good stuff. Goodbye, Ari. Uh, this year started another volume of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, probably the final one based on the age of the creator and some comments made before it kicked off and just a lot of things suggest that it can't go on forever and Hirohiko Araki is aware of it. The Jojo Lands, which is, if you know, you know, but it's another one of those remix versions, and it moves forward in time from the last one, the, in my eyes, incredibly subpar Jojolian, Part 8. The Jojo Lands hit the ground running with a young man beating the shit out of a lot of cops with a stand named November Rain, and just being the worst hoodlum. Absolutely the worst piece of shit protagonist that we've had in this whole series, taking place in Hawaii trying to rob the famous to just, like, get some shit out of their house because you ain't got none. And a crew of people who includes possibly the first trans character, well, the first trans major protagonist in the JoJo series, uh, Tingle from The Legend of Zelda, that's not a joke, and all kinds of freaky shit out the gate as we start figuring out what is going to go wrong with this little crew of small-time thugs running around an island 
and how are they going to bring down hell upon themselves like the first chapter promises. It's great. The crew's great. It seems to be Araki firing on all cylinders again. Hopefully this doesn't just completely start to fizzle out and shit the bed like Jojolian did. Over ten fucking years. Also this year, uh, we came to the end of one of my favorite gag series, uh, Mashal, by Hajime Komoto. It's It starts out as what seems to be, what if we did Harry Potter, but funny. It's a boy at a magic school, except it's very clear from the author's comments and the themes of the series that the author does not think that that was a good work. There are a lot of very pointed japes at how that whole society could not hold together, and the entire premise is that wizards are uh, eugenicist fucks who should not be trusted with their power, and their society has ossified into a horrendous might-makes-right stratum, and our protagonist, young Mash, is in fact born completely without magic. So his grandfather finds him and takes him into the woods away from society and trains him in the art of working out. So Mash has become incredibly superhuman and eventually, when circumstances send the magic cops to their door, Grandpa and this cop decide, well, we would like to not kill this young man who seems to be upstanding, but unfortunately he's going to have to change the entire face of magical society to do that. So Mash ends up at a wizarding college and has to fake his way through everything to try and become a divine visionary, the highest ranked wizard. There are some people in high places who would like to see him succeed because they too think the society is terrible. There are some horrendous people who are basically just there as gags. There are some of the most broken individuals you will ever see in a shonen manga, to the point where a couple of them are deal breakers for some people I know who have started this, like the... Admittedly, all of this is taken to comedic, cranked to 11 proportions, but... I know some people really hate the sister complex guy who just carries around a locket and would do anything including die for his sister who I don't think appears in the manga at all by the end. If she does, I it was very blinker, you'll miss it. It's such a weird obsession and everyone in this group makes fun of everyone else in this group for their foibles, but... They are all completely jacked up people who just end up becoming friends because they're all the outcasts and weirdos. And that's before you start getting into the love of puns and other things like I am the room master, room aster, or other things which can be spoken by a talking wall or all sorts of critters like the guy with control over gravity or yeah. Various characters, it starts turning into weird JoJo stand fights when it does become an actual shonen battle comic for a little. It's pretty fun. It's creative. I love it. Uh, with that, I... I don't know. 
I could keep going on, but I'm going to start stretching more and more if I do, and you probably have other things to do, but thank you again for being a listener in 2023. We will be back in two weeks with another already recorded episode. We have plans to keep going with Iron-Blooded Orphans. We have plans to keep doing things in the new year. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next year. And for now, have yourself a wonderful holiday season. Or if you're listening to this in the future, hey, thanks for giving this a click. I know you could have just skipped on to the next episode of IBO, but it's always good to know these bonuses find a home. Bye.